preaching uh, an impassioned sermon about death and final judgments. And the preacher said forcefully that each member of this church is going to die and face judgment. And he glanced around the room and everyone kind of had a somber look on their face except for one man who sat in the front. Uh, you know this is a preacher joke because someone's sitting in the front. No offense to those two who are. And so, uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but he, he noticed one man sitting in the front who had a, a smile on his face. And so that caught it again. So he, he repeated his point louder. He said, each member of this church is going to die and face judgment. And the man just, again, nodded and smiled even more. And this really got the preacher wound up. And so with all the gusto he could, he pounded the pulpit and emphatically uh, yelled across the room, each member of this church is going to die and face judgment. And though everybody else in the crowd was now very serious and very somber, a little on edge, the man in the front continued to smile. So finally the preacher went down from the, from the stage and went right in front of the man with all he had, he said, each one of the members of the congregation is going to die and you're going to face judgment. And again, the man grinned ear to ear. And so finally, the preacher gave up, went back on with the rest of his sermon. As soon as the service was over, he made a beeline to the man and he asked him the question, look, every time I said each, and every, each member of this church is going to die, your smile got bigger. Why is that? I'm not a member of this church. And so uh, um, the, uh, the theme of what we're going to talk about here today is, um, is one that begins with a bit of a somber tone like that. It, it begins with a little bit of the, uh, um, every one of us is going to die and it doesn't look good for us part of a passage. And that's never really encouraging to hear. But the gospel never holds back on telling us the truth. And so today, um, no matter whether you are a member of Ninth Street or not, uh, I think the truth that this t passage teaches us and presents to us, uh, I think, apply to all of us. I believe they do, and, and I hope that you will hear them. And, and what we're going to look at today is one of the uh, richest, um, most, I don't know if simple is the right word, concise summaries of what it means for us to be, uh, the word that we have chosen today is alive, but I almost chose the word saved. We use that word, we hear that word talked about, I'm saved, what does that mean? And I think Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 presents us with a beautiful summary of, of the why and the hows and the so what's of that thinking. And so we're going to look at this from the perspective though of the word alive because Paul uses this word alive and, and I think alive is really the contrast that he's trying to, to highlight here between the alternatives, which is death. And so as we read through this passage here, I just want you to, uh, to think with me here today, and we're going to read through it, and we're just going to walk back through it, just highlighting a few of the reasons that Paul is so um, excited that he is alive in Christ. Again, not physically alive, but that his soul is alive in Christ. And as he does so, I think he draws us to think about, are those things that are true of me as well? And so um, let's jump into our text, Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, we're going to read the first 10 verses here. It's on the screen as well. Um, you can follow along. And Paul begins with a little phrase. Let me just, I'm not going to stop after this, but the first three words, as for you, okay? And every time you see something like that, it's maybe good to go, well, well, if it's as for you, that means he's talking about somebody else before. And if you remember here last week, at the end of chapter 1, Paul goes in verses 19 through 23, he takes us on this incredible journey, reminding us of the heights and, and reminding us of the power and the authority of the risen and ascended Christ, and so Christ sits in the position of power. He rules over all. Nothing can faze him. He is victor over everyone and everything that this world could ever bring at him. But then Paul takes the attention from Jesus, risen and ascended in heaven, 
And he puts the spotlight on you and me. And he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions or your trespasses, some of your Bibles might say, and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desire, its, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. As for, uh, where are we at here? There we go. But, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's, work, are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so Paul presents uh, to us a, a scenario, I and mean, we could summarize this chapter and this little section in, in several ways, but a simple way to do it is just like who we were, what God did for us through Christ, and who we are now, and that's kind of the pattern we're going to fall. But I want us to, as I read through this passage, I really was drawn to the idea that Paul keeps coming back to this theme, this idea of we are alive, and his emphasis and his excitement, the, uh, the zeal inside of him, I think, just kind of overflows as he thinks of, uh, of the nook and cranny that God went to in his soul, in our lives, of anyone who's a, who's a redeemed uh, follower of Christ, that the, the, the depths and the lengths by which and to which God went to bring us back to life. And so there are a few things that I want you to see that Paul, that why is alive such a big deal to Paul in this passage? Why is that such a, an intricate thing that he, he stops and, and just really unpacks for us? Well, I think the first thing is this. Paul is so excited about being alive because once you and I weren't alive. Paul begins in verses 1 through 3 with a rather somber teaching, with a rather somber writing and he makes a pretty radical claim about who you and I are if we're outside of Christ. He says that we're, we're dead. He says we're dead. And again, that's not something that in our modern ears or modern thinking that tends to sit well or that we think much about. And not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And I would just ask you, do you believe that? And um, because how do you really think of yourself outside of Christ says a lot about how you see the gospel. And, and, and so I would ask you, your, 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 the question is, what was your condition before you met Jesus? It, it's common for us to think, and I find myself sometimes falling into these traps, that, well, apart from Jesus, I was okay. I wasn't great. My life wasn't all put together, but I was mistaken and just needed in need of some correction. Or I was confused and I just needed someone to clarify some things for me. Or I was just uneducated and I needed Jesus to come and teach me a few things. Or I was off track and, and according to my GPS, I just needed some recalculating in my life. Or I was just a little sick and in need of a little medicine, a little help. But I'm really not that bad. But not often do we think of ourselves as dead and in need of resurrection. 
But that is exactly who, and Paul says, he was before he met Jesus, and who all of us are before we meet Jesus and surrender to him. Paul paints a rather, rather bleak picture of our lives outside of Christ, and, and, and I want you to notice there are three claims that he, he kind of, as you walk through these first three verses, he, he just kind of drills down on and says, you think, well, he says we're dead, you think, well, that's bad enough, but then he, he unpacks that. Where does that death come from? Where, where does all that come from? And so he says first that, uh, that we are dead in our transgressions or our trespasses and sins. So, so where does the bad news begins? begin? Begin? Where does the bad news begin? I'll get my English going here in a second. Where does the bad news begin? It, it begins with this idea that you and I have transgressions, trespasses, and sins in our life. And the fruit of sin, the Bible says, is spiritual death. Now, you and I are created in God's image. We are image bearers of, of, of a creator. And, and so I, I can be going through my life and, and I may do some beautiful things. I may love in a sacrificial way from time to time. I may do some things that reflect that image of the God who created me. But apart from Jesus, I liked one lesson I looked at for a couple weeks ago that, that used the word that we are unplugged from the life source. And so all of you who have a phone or if you have anything that runs off a battery, you know that once you unplug something from the life source, it may function for quite some time, but eventually it will die because it's unplugged from the life source. And so when Paul says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that doesn't mean that you and I can't live functional lives. It doesn't mean that we can't go through life and, and do many things. But if I'm not connected to the life source, then there is a spiritual death in me. And the flow of things tends to be the spiritual death happens in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first sin. And then physical death comes and then the Bible talks about an eternal death that flow, follows that, if something doesn't interrupt that pattern. And, and so the types of sins he talks about, he talks about trespasses or transgressions. It's, uh, you've all seen, walked up to houses that had no trespassing signs on them. Uh, that, that, that means there's a line here, don't cross this line, or there'll be consequences to it. And yet when he says that he describes our sin as trespasses or transgressions, it's the idea there's a line and I'm going to run past it. I'm going to go past the line that God said don't go past there. And then he uses the word sins. That's, that's the idea of, of just missing the mark. And so maybe one implication is more of those sins of commission, things that I do on purpose that, that are just wrong versus maybe the sins of omission that just don't measure up. I just fall short of the mark of God's holiness and perfection because of, of who I am my sin. And so whether it's whichever one of those, it kind of gets both sides of it, the stuff I do on purpose and the stuff I just fail to be and do as a human being. But the important thing to get from this is that the result of these things is, is spiritual death. It unplugs us from the life source and we are dead in our sins. And so when we find ourselves there, we... Um, we don't oftentimes, at least in our modern culture, think about, well, sin's a big deal to God. And God says that when I am cut off from him, that my soul is spiritually dead. But yet Paul makes that very clear. He, and he doesn't just leave us there. He could have just said, yeah, you're dead in trespasses and sin. But then he unpacks it to a second thing that says, you know what, that death also came because we were followers. In verse 2, he says, you are following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And... Again, we don't like to think of ourselves as dead, and we certainly don't like to think of ourselves as followers because we live in an age where it's not cool to follow, right? We've got to be our own independent person. I am me, and so I'm not following anybody is our claim. 
But the reality of it is we're all following somebody. I'm either following the Lord, I'm following the pattern of this world. And what Paul seems to indicate is the course of this world is is one that if you just get in the stream of the flow of the world, are you going to go towards God or away from God? And Paul's implication, if you just go the flow of the world around you, there's no intentionality to pursue God, you're going to be drift far, far from God. You're going to end up far from him, removed from him, doing things that that are trespasses and transgressions and sins. You'll just be far from God. And there's just a flow of the world that, that you can go back to the beginning of the Bible to today. There's just a, a, a school of thought that is always active in our world that is always just says, you know what, we don't need God. It's the Tower of Babel all over again from Genesis 10 and 11, where the people of the world came together and said, we don't need God. We don't need his rules. We don't need to do it his way. We're just going to come together on our own wisdom, our own power. We don't need God. It's the same thing King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel do you remember when he got all of, all of his, his court and all of his people together and he built his big, tall sta- statue of, of, of his God? And, and he said, you know what? At the sound of the music, everybody's got to bow down to my God. And Daniel and his friends, they didn't do that. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And in doing that, again, there's just the attitude, though, that, that is prominent. It's always been. It's not just Babylon. It's not just Daniel and his people in his day, it's, it's always there. And sometimes it takes the form of religious, religious stuff. <laughs> There's a big fancy word I was trying to say, but religious stuff or even just ungodly, worldly stuff. But anytime I just go with the flow and I'm not intentionally seeking after the Lord, I'm going to drift away from him. And so Paul says, as a follower, you follow the course of this world. You also follow the prince of the power of the air. And that's just a fancy name for Satan, for the devil, and that he creates and controls an atmosphere in this world. And he's not talking about oxygen and ozone layers. He's talking about a metaphorical attitude that fills the world, that attitude that exists among humanity. And Paul recalls a time, even in his own life, when he thought he was serving God with all of his hearts, but in reality... Satan had blinded him and he was working against God. He was zealous in persecuting Christ and his people. And, and Paul recognized I just, Satan had blinded me to that. And, and so maybe we follow the course of the world. Maybe we follow the prince, the power of the air. Or number three, down in verse three, there's another thing he says that maybe there's this passions of our flesh and desires of the body and mind. And so we're a follower, right? We're either following just the ways of the world, just go with what the world does, and you're going to end up far from God, follow the atmosphere, the, the, the leader of this world, or just it probably all culminates together that you just follow your own flesh. Whatever feels good, whatever looks right, whatever you want to do, just follow that. And Paul says all of that was producing a spiritual death in us and had produced a spiritual death. We are at the mercy of our own desires and that we as human beings have God-given desires. We want to eat, right? It's, it's breakfast time almost. We want to eat, right? We have a natural desire for that. We want to rest. We want to enjoy sex. We want to communicate and on and on. Those God-given desires are within us and all of these desires are good. And yet if we just follow our flesh, we find a way to pervert these good things. And so we eat to the point of gluttony, or on the flip side of that, we refuse to eat because of insecurity or whatever is going on in our life, or our mind. Or maybe we want to rest to the point of sloth, or maybe we reject rest because we think, I'm strong and I don't need rest. I don't need that in my life, and I'm, I'm a God and I'm amongst myself. And, or maybe we want sex to the point that we make it our central identity or take it beyond the bounds of what God has given us. 
or maybe we want to communicate and be known. That's just a natural desire, right? But we turn that communication into something vile or hateful or angry. And those are just simply passions of the flesh, normal desires that get twisted. And, and Paul says all of those things that we were following. So we were dead because of, of trespasses and sins. Um, and apart from Christ, we're just going with the flow, following the, the ways of the world, following Satan's influence in the world, following our own passions, our own flesh, whatever our flesh wants. And that all produced death. And, and there's one last thing that Paul says that we are, we are under at the end of verse 3, um, that we are deserving of wrath. If you wanted to really have a bad day, just think about that phrase for a while. That apart from the Lord, all I am is deserving of wrath. It's because of my sin. It's because of my trespasses. It's because I'm constantly following my flesh or following the attitude of the world or following the ways of the world that all lead me away from God, that are just godless and, and prideful and, and man-centered, not God-centered. And he says we're under the wrath of God. And so I would just ask you as you think about this thing, this whole topic, this whole first point, Paul rejoices not that we were dead, but that he owns that. He owns the fact that apart from Christ, this is who he was. And this is who we are apart from Christ, he teaches us. And so I would just ask you as you think about that, does that offend you? How does that sit on your mind? The temptation for us is to water that down, to make that less toxic, to make that less serious, because we're uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable with the idea of being spiritually dead or under the wrath of God. And yet, Paul says that's where our own sin and selfishness takes us. And yet, God cares about that condition in our life. Many of you have had people in your life go through cancer, maybe die because of cancer. And, and it's common if you walk around and look at people have t-shirts and slogans and billboards and all kinds of things that uh, they express their anger and their hatred for the disease of cancer because of the pain it has caused in their life. And that's a very natural thing. And we all understand that and we get that. And that's wrath, right? We are wrathful toward a disease that does so much damage to something and to somebody's the people that we love. And so in a lot of ways, I think the wrath of God is very much the same way from a heavenly perspective. That very much sin is a cancer that is killing humanity. And that when you see that God is wrathful or God is angry towards sin, it is not an angry God just to be angry, but it is an angry God who loves his creation. And he sees this cancer that's infected his people and he's bothered by that. And he hates that. And he's wrathful towards that, that destroys that which he loves. And so he has to respond. And so that leads us towards the second thing I want you to see. Because Paul says that, you know what, the best part of being alive, the first one, is that once I was dead... And now I'm alive, and so I rejoice in, in what he has delivered me from. But there's a second thing he's going to see. Now, now, the good thing about this, you read this first three verses, and again, they're not very encouraging verses. They're honest verses, but they're not encouraging. And you can kind of get to feeling like, well, maybe I'm, is this the citywide cleanup week here in Eldon? I'm so excited for that. It's always a fun week to watch the happenings in town and see everybody else's junk. And in fact, we've already pillaged some of our neighbor's stuff for our own in just the last, just yesterday. So it's a fun week. And so uh, we, uh, but if you drive around town, you're going to see a lot of junk, unwanted things taken to the curb and left there, right? Because I don't want that anymore. But that's not God's response to dead, following the wrong thing, under his wrath, people. 
You see, the, the second thing that Paul says, I am thankful that I'm alive for, is this. By the amazing and gracious work and power of God, he has been brought back to life. That yes, he was dead. Yes, he was messed up in so many ways because of all the things that were wrong in his life. But God, in his amazing and gracious work, through his power, he brought Paul back to life. And he brings us back to life through our faith in him as well. And so there's this beautiful thing that Paul does. And, and Paul, as he begins in verse 4 and begins to walk through this passage, some of the sweetest words ever are simply this little phrase, but God. Yeah, but God. Some of your translations have, have words in there, so I eliminated some of those. But really the, the, the structure of the sentence is, hey, this is, this is how bad it was, right? We were dead. We were lost. We were following the wrong things. We're due for wrath from God. But then verse 4 comes, but God. And those sweet little words that say, you know what? God just followed through with the wrath and we're all toast. But instead of that, you read, but God made us alive with Christ. There's a beauty in that. There's a sweetness in that that I think Paul resonates within him that all seemed lost. And, and if there's any kind of story that you and I probably all latch onto, it's a rescue story. We love stories of people that are in trouble, right? If there's a news story, someone's stuck in a cave or a mine or in a burning building or all the movies we like, all the stories we read, uh, we're drawn to stories of a good rescue, and Paul begins to unfold for us the most beautiful rescue ever. And so we're just going to approach this next two verses kind of like a journalist. We're going to ask the why question. We're going to ask the what question. And we're going to ask the how question. And so let's look at those verses and just think about as Paul rejoices about this, this truth. That God brought him back to life through his goodness and his power and his amazing grace. Um, why did he do it? And that's where you find verses 4 and 5. That because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. I think that's the coolest part of the whole thing. Especially in contrast to verses 1 through 3 where it's just an ugly mess here on earth. But what's God's response from heaven? God's response was great love and it was mercy shown towards people who probably had scorned his love and who did not deserve mercy anymore. And yet he is rich in it. And so he poured out mercy and love towards us. And because he is rich in mercy, his mercy rescues us from wrath. And his mercy is compassion. And his mercy gave way to love. And love is simply seeking the highest good of the one that you love. And we do that imperfect, imperfectly in so many ways. But God loves us so richly and so perfectly. And so the why is a beautiful thing just to stop and think about. Why would God do that? It's because he's, he's great, his great love and he is rich in mercy for us. What did he do? Verses 5 and 6 goes on to say, he made us alive together with Christ. He, he, he does these things where he begins to talk about all the things that God was doing to Jesus, that he makes him alive, that he, he raises him up, he seats him in heaven. He says, you know what? That same pattern when we were united with Christ becomes true of us, that we become alive again as well. He says this, he made us alive with Christ in verse 4. He united us with Jesus. The only way a spiritually dead person can commune with God is to be made alive. And that is not something that we can work hard to do. We can earn ourselves. In fact, twice this passage, Paul makes it clear, this is not something you have done for yourself. This is God's amazing grace and his great amazing kindness toward us. 
that God made us alive together with Christ. God made, he raised us up with him, uh, verses six and seven, and then he seated us with him in the heavenly realms. And so the same pattern that happened to Jesus also happens to us. And so there's this beautiful thing that, that's pictured here, that God resurrects us with Christ. And this, this picture of, of things being uh, forged together, um, and I have several illustrations of this, but I was at a wedding last night and I was visiting with somebody who's a farmer and they have a, a gate that, it's a metal gate and they had a, a metal chain that was holding this gate shut and lightning had struck nearby this gate and it had fused the chain onto the metal uh, gate. And so it was, it was fused there. And, and I just thought, you know, that's a perfect example of exactly what he's talking about, right? Uh, we dead, uh, messed up, deserving wrath people are fused into this person, into this life that receives so much better than we would ever deserve. And so we don't gain all these things because we're good, we're right. But being united to him, we get to enjoy the benefits of what he has done. And so there's this beautiful bond that happens. And I just love the way that Paul, as you go through the book of Romans, Paul unpacks this whole passage of Ephesians 1 through 10 in six, seven, eight chapters. And he talks about the lostness of mankind in chapters 1 through 3. How we don't deserve anything. We're all sinners. We're all lost before God. But then God through faith justifies us by faith in Christ. And, and he culminizes it with this beautiful language in, verse, in chapter 6 that just talks about the unity that we have with Christ and enjoying his new life as our own. He says, oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united, there's that forged word, united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so there's this beauty that Paul just celebrates that God is bringing him back to life through his kindness and his mercy and his grace. And I love this last phrase in verse 7 when he says, just reminds us that we are united, we are raised, we are seated with Christ. Our great position now is in Christ. And there's beauty in that. And that fusion, that bond um, doesn't just happen once though. Because some of us live our lives as if, well, God loved me enough to save me and he got me on the right path. And now I'm not sure what he thinks of me because I haven't always walked so, so straight since meeting Jesus. But I love the end of this verse 7. It says that in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And I probably should have highlighted the other phrase, that in the, order, in, in the coming ages, right, it wasn't just a one-time transaction where God says, hey, here's mercy and grace, I love you, I'll set you free from all the consequences of your sin, but you better earn it the rest of the way. That's not at all what he says. He says there's an awesome statement from Paul that, that God wants to continue to pour out mercy the mercy of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ in the coming ages, right? Not just once, but, but through all the ages that you will live. He wants to pummel us with the waves of grace, someone said. And I love that, that analogy. Just to be pummeled with the waves of grace and mercy and kindness that he shows towards us. This is what God did and desires to do towards us. And then finally, how did he do it? Verse 8, this beautiful passage that, that gets read a lot and heard a lot. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, but not by works so that no one can boast. So how did God perform this glorious work? 
He performed it through faith. What is faith? Faith is simply a simple trust, a saving trust in Jesus Christ as, as a living person who forgives us and brings eternal life to us with God. There's a simple idea of trust and surrender. There's not 10 commandments to keep perfectly. There's not things to work hard at. It's simply a matter of trust and surrender to him. And that faith has always been God's forever method of delivering salvation. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. Go back all the way to Genesis 15 when Abraham, the Bible says, because he believed God, it was considered to reckon to him as righteousness. Think about the, the, the Israelites in Egypt, the Passover feast. They put the blood on the door as an act of faith to say, we believe that God will save us and they were spared. Think of the bronze serpent in the, in the wilderness when they were sick from a plague and, and, and Moses built the bronze serpent and said, if you just look at this, you'll be saved, you'll be all right. And, and they did. For, for, all, for all Bible time, God has always, God's delivery system has always been faith. Um, I love space stuff and everybody's, it seems like every other article now is how we're going to live on Mars and what we're going to eat in Mars. And, and I love those stories just to think about that. Someday they'll need a chaplain on Mars. So in my retirement years, I may just catch a ship and go Mars to Mars. Um, but some of you may collect money now and send me ahead of time. Um, but I love those stories, but I love that idea because if, if you think, well, how am I going to get a fragile human being into space? How are we going to get supplies there? Well, you need a vehicle, Right. And the vehicle that we need has to be able to, to survive the elements, do everything we need it to do. And when you think biblically, what is God's vehicle to get me from, from death and sin to, to salvation, to be united with Christ? It's faith. It's this faith, it's this trust and surrender that we bring towards God. Every once in a while, you'll see we had a lot of flooding this spring. It happens all the time around the world. And there's this picture I just want you to see with me. That oftentimes you, uh, you'll see someone flying with a helicopter. Someone has managed to climb onto their roof because they're, they don't have any other place to go, right? And, and so the vehicle of salvation wasn't because they climbed on the roof. It was simply because someone was dropped in. And their simple act was just, here I am, take me. Uh, here I am, just get me out of here. And the idea that, that they're just lifted out, they're rescued, they're, they're delivered from a terrible, dangerous situation. And, and I think when you and I think of that, when a couple of different times Paul makes the, the claim in here that, that he did it by grace through faith so that no one can boast. And imagine if someone who, who was rescued from, that, from a rooftop bragging about, well, you know, I grabbed on to the, uh, the soldier better than you did, so, so I'm better than you. There's none of that, right? There's none of that, that we're all just desperate in need of salvation, and, and God comes and he swoops in through Christ, and it's simply a matter of saying, you know what, here I am, take me. I trust you to save me. And so that whole idea of, of God using faith to save us in God's grace towards us is amazing. And Paul was excited about that as he looked at his old life. I was once dead and now I'm alive. Now it's because of God's great mercy, his amazing grace towards me that he has shown me that. And last, we'll move to this third one, is this. I, I think alive is such a big deal to Paul because he was once dead, we were once dead, but also because we were brought back to life. But I think also the most beautiful part of this, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, but that new life has a grand and glorious purpose. Paul was excited about being alive in Christ because it wasn't just a one-time thing and you're done. It was an entrance into this grand life, this grand and glorious purpose that God now had for him. And I love the language that he uses when he uses that word workmanship. It's a Greek word that means poema. Our English word poem comes from that. Um, 
Other translations use words like that we are God's handiwork, we are God's masterpiece, we are his workmanship. And so many of you are very skilled in building things. I'm not skilled in much of any of those things, but so I admire anybody who can do those things. Earlier this summer, we took a little family trip to New York and we went to an art museum while we were there. And just to walk through the, the intricate things that people had made centuries and centuries ago, and just to admire their, their handiwork, uh, their masterpieces, their workmanship. And simply that, that word is simply the idea that, that this is the overflow of someone's creativity, their love, their energy. And God says, or Paul says, that you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are his, that you are, his handiwork. And I dare say that just as sometimes we have a hard time grasping the idea of being lost, I think sometimes just as much on the other side that there's a lot of us who struggle with seeing ourselves as being any kind of handiwork that would be any kind of overflow of God's expression of creativity and, and work in this world. Because what we tend to see ourselves by is the lenses of verses 1 through 3, not the lenses of 4 through 9. Not, I, I define myself and I see myself as, boy, I just don't do it right very often and I'm lost and God can't be proud of me versus, oh, isn't God's grace amazing and, and in him I have this great position and, and I want to grow into that and I want to experience that. We, you, child of God, are God's workmanship. You are not your own workmanship. You are his. And God can create something beautiful out of nothing and out of broken things, and out of lostness. The only other time this word is used is in Romans 1.20. When, when Paul is describing the heavens and the earth, right? We all love to take a trip. You don't have to go out. You don't have to leave. I was at a wedding last night again. It was a beautiful outdoor wedding and beautiful trees and sky, just a beautiful setting. You don't have to go far to find beautiful things in this world that just kind of pause and say, man, isn't God good? Watch the sunset, go to the beach, go to the mountains, go to the beautiful things of this world, this earth. And, and there's God's handiwork, the Bible says, is evidence of God's creativity, God's heart, God's, God's mind. But Paul uses the same word here to say that you, child of God, are the same thing. You are that. That just like the heavens and the earth show the glory of God, so do you. You are God's masterpiece, and he is showing off his craftsmanship in you. And so my, my thought and my prayer today is, is simply this. I think sometimes I listened to a thing this week um, that we, if you read Ephesians, if you've read it with us up to this point, you've seen this idea that, that God's fullness in the end of chapter one is poured into his church, his people, and that's, that's how God's going to get the whole earth, show glory to the whole earth, is his glory to the whole earth is, is through people like you and me. That he's going to pour himself into us and do that. But I love what this guy said. I forget his name. Uh, I should have wrote it down, but I didn't. He said this, what if our people, and he's speaking at a church leaders conference, and so he's talking about you. What if you are better suited, more strategically located, more easily connected, more resourced, and more perceptive than me as a preacher could ever be? And sometimes we reverse that, and, and we as a church, some, as church leaders, sometimes we reverse that, that sometimes we take God's masterpieces, and we ask you to just sit in the pew and watch a few people do a few things, and then you leave, and you never think of yourself as a place where God is, is creating his handiwork, doing his masterpiece, 
And yet I've just been reminded of it as I've begun to think of this. I see people who go into schools in, this, in these communities around us and here and all around us and the heart that they take and the God that they take with them and, and the workplaces of businesses and all kinds of places around here where, where yeah, they're doing a daily job, but it's always got a, God's always at work in them. God is always using them to touch lives, to, to, to minister to people that no preacher could ever do because you, as God's people, are better suited, more strategically located, more easily connected, more resourced, more perceptive than oftentimes we can ever be from, from anyone up here with a title. Because that's the way God designed it, that God wants to fill his people so that everywhere his people goes, the kingdom goes and it grows. And so uh, I just want to encourage you today. Look where Paul took you from. Paul took you from just a terrible picture of lostness to a beautiful picture of of God's grace through faith, changing lives to this place now where he ends that now we are God's workmanship. And it's my prayer that you would believe that, that you would realize that in simple ways, don't think grand things, but in oftentimes just very simple everyday things, God is shaping and making his masterpiece in you. He maybe is chiseling some of the old things away and making new things come out of you. He is using you to do things, to resource things, to to love people, to be there in hard situations. He is using you. And so we've talked about nooks and crannies in this series so far. And we said the first three weeks that, that really the nooks and crannies that Jesus wants to fill first are not places far from here. They're not other parts of the world. God, I think, begins very much inside you and me. And so think about the three things that we've said together. Think about your soul. We said the first week that, that Jesus wants to fill your soul with blessings and a worth of all that God has done because he loves you passionately. And so he wants to fill that nook and cranny of your soul that just doesn't feel worth much. He wants to fill that up. And so then we looked last week at the idea of a soul that is calmed and filled. And so we can be confident. We can have this poise that by God's power at work in us that we can face things, but it all comes from within. So a soul filled with worth, a soul, soul filled with confidence and poise. And, and here today, a soul made alive and created to be and do all the work in this world that your heavenly father has prepared in advance for you to be doing. And so we're going to begin to look, next week we're going to look at kind of the, how we get along together, that nook and cranny of relational stuff. But boy, don't miss this. Because I think if we miss these first three things, boy, it's going to be harder to be and to do the stuff out here if in here is not right. And so my prayer for you today is that you would know your worth before your heavenly Father through Christ. And that you would know that confident poise that God would open your eyes to see the hope and the inheritance, and the friendship with God, and the power of God that is available everywhere you go, every day that you live in Christ, and that you would see yourself, if you're in Christ, as a masterpiece, as his handiwork that he is daily shaping, and using, and and leading, and, and just, again, oftentimes in very small, subtle ways, but just daily using to do his work, and his kingdom work around this community, and around this world. And so it's my prayer for you today that you would know those things, that your heart would be full and that mine would be as well. So would you pray with me? Let's ask God to do those things for us, please.